Well, Father, we come before you as the great and awesome God who rules and governs all things. And Father, as we talk about just your providence and how you move the wheels of history to accomplish your ends, I, I pray that it will just fill us with wonder. Pray that uh, this message will be clear and helpful to those who hear it. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I wanted to kind of start my sermon by introducing you to something called the butterfly effect. You guys ever heard about it? Have you ever seen Jurassic Park? Right, there's a famous uh, little tidbit by Dr. Ian Malcolm, who is played by Jeff Goldblum, who, who basically explains how he's an expert in chaos theory. And this is what he describes it as. It simply deals with unpredictability in complex systems. The shorthand is the butterfly effect. A butterfly can flap its wings in Peking, and in Central Park, you get rain instead of sunshine. And, and so the idea is this. You can't predict the future because of all these tiny variations, such as a butterfly flapping their wings, which means that everything is unpredictable. And in this case, all these security systems to keep the animals from, or dinosaurs from eating people would fail. I know it's a plot spoiler there, but that's the plot of the movie. <laughs> but when I look at uh, chaos theory, and just the idea that you can't predict the future, it, it causes me to look at just the marvel of biblical prophecy. How was it that it comes to pass? Now, one of the ways that biblical prophecy comes to pass is by God's direct intervention when he performs a miracle. For instance, in Isaiah 7, 14, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Right? That was fulfilled through a miracle. An angel appeared to Mary. She asked, how can this be? The Holy Spirit came upon her, and boom, a virgin is with child. So that is one category of prophecies where God does something amazing. He performs some sort of miracle. But there's another form of prophecy which is fulfilled by, um, by normal means. One prophecy is in Micah 5.2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah... From you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Now in this prophecy, the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Right, the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. And we see the fulfillment of this prophecy in, in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, where this is not something that's accomplished by a miracle. It's actually accomplished by normal means, normal decisions, where in spite of the butterfly effect, all of these decisions break a certain way so that God's prophecy, God's will, is perfectly fulfilled. So if you haven't already, we're going to go to our Mother's Day passage, right? The birth of Jesus. Luke 2, 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus 
that all the world should be registered. This was in the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and swaddling cloths and laid him, laid him in a manger because there was no place for them at the inn. Now this passage, it chronicles the movement from Nazareth where Joseph and Mary resided all the way down to Bethlehem. 75 to 90 mile journey depending on what route they would take. Now we know that the announcement of the birth of Jesus and the announcement of John the Baptist were both miraculous, weren't they? The angel appeared to them. We also know that the conception of Mary, conception of Jesus through Mary, as well as the conception of John the Baptist were, were miraculous in nature, especially Mary's. And there could be a tendency to think that the way God moves and interacts with history to accomplish His will is only done through spectacular means, through miracles, through signs. But here we see that there is going to be a fulfillment of prophecy that is going to be done through normal means. I want to focus on that word normal. How would you like to be described as normal? Pastor Dave is a normal preacher. He's a normal husband and a normal father. Or how about you mothers? Thank you, mother, for being normal. Right? That would be a great Hallmark card, right? I'm not sure how mothers would take that. I'm not sure how grandmothers would feel if their son gave that card to their wife, but not to them. You know, it, it can go all kinds of bad places. People often don't want to live a normal Christian life. They want to do something exceptional, something that causes them to stand out. You look at other people who are kind of addicted to different spiritual fads, right? They jump from place to place to place because they just don't want to be normal. They get bored of the normal, and it's almost like People believe that God can't work in the normal. But in this passage, what we see is that God accomplishes His will through normal means. And when you look at all the things that could go wrong, the chaos theory and the butterfly effect, that is significant. That God can take normal decisions to accomplish His spectacular will. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at really two decisions in the fulfillment of prophecy and how God works spectacular miracles, if you will. He executes his plan in spectacular ways through normal means. And what was true back then is true today. So we see three decisions, or really two decisions, the decision of the emperor, and then kind of three, the decision of Joseph and Mary, and then the fulfillment of prophecy. So let's look at the first decision of the emperor. Okay, now to bring you up to speed, Elizabeth has just given birth, and right as she is about to give birth, Mary goes back to Nazareth. So she is in Nazareth, and something happened 2,000 or 2,000 miles away, probably a few years before this event happened on Palatine Hill, where a certain emperor of Rome decided to take a census. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered 
And that was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, Caesar Augustus was born Gaius Octavius Thurinus, better known as Octavian. He was the nephew of Julius Caesar, and he basically became Julius Caesar's adopted son. In fact, when Julius Caesar died, he, or was assassinated, if you read right, Shakespeare, uh, he was designated to be the heir of the empire. The problem was, Mark Antony kind of uh, took over at that point and presumed to be the leader of Rome. Now, there was bad blood between Mark Antony and Octavian because Mark Antony was married to Octavian's sister, and he decided to leave her for Cleopatra, right? The Roman Empire was a big soap opera, by the way. And so... Madly in love with Cleopatra, Antony goes ahead and leaves Rome for Egypt, and Octavian's able to get all of Rome united behind him against Mark Antony because he left Rome for this woman of questionable morals from Egypt. So they had a great naval battle in Actium, and Octavian wins, Cleopatra and Mark Antony commit suicide, and now... He is Caesar, and he is granted the name Augustus Caesar and was the longest-serving emperor that the Roman Empire had ever, had ever known. And from what we know, he was a good emperor. Uh, there was peace, building projects, the arts began to flourish, and he was a shrewd administrator. And one of the ways that he was able to keep a hold on the empire was through the judicious uses of a census. Now, a census had a couple purposes. Number one, it was to register all the uh, empire and all the young men to be eligible to serve in the Roman legions. The Jews were exempted because they were such a problem people that they didn't want to give them extra weapons. The, uh, but there was another reason. It basically led to efficient taxation. If the Roman government knew how much money you had... They knew how much taxes you had to pay. It's harder to cheat the tax man if they know about all your assets. And so this was carried out by many of his underlings. Quirinius was probably part of this in some way. There's some debate about you know, how you reconcile this mention with some other ancient sources. But basically what we know is that Quirinius probably played some role. He was a governor of Syria. In Syria, they had a Roman legions there, but not in Israel. So if there's ever a problem that Herod might have had with an unruly clan, it would have been Quirinius who would have been sent in extra soldiers to make sure that the census took place. Now, this was not something that uh, was popular in Israel. It was the exertion of Roman power where the emperor used his privileges to exercise his will and to make sure that what was going to be done would be done. Right? The government, in many ways, has the power to shape our lives. Agreed? This past week, unless you've been in a coma, you know that there was a draft opinion that was leaked that would overturn Roe versus Wade. May it be so. May it be so. But that draft opinion, if that is overturned, think about how many lives would be altered. How many babies 
who would otherwise be aborted would be born. And think about how that would change human history. And so you look at all these big decisions that are made, like numbering a census that, that moves people from one place to another to be counted. What's behind all of that? Well, according to Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. It's kind of like an irrigation ditch, right? God just does this and the flap goes this way, and he reroutes the water. So behind all of this is an understanding that for him to be born in Bethlehem, for Jesus to be born in Bethlehem, he has to get to Bethlehem. And one of the mechanisms that God uses is the decision of kings. But there's another decision that's made between Joseph and Mary. And all went to be registered each to his own town. Now in the U.S., when we have a census... The census workers go to the citizens. They ask questions. They ask for feedback. But in the Roman Empire, they make the citizens go to the workers, even if it means an inconvenient journey. And so if you look at this, they are basically advocating population relocation. I mean, it's almost like the Soviet Union. Right, where they would just populate Siberia by just telling the citizens, by the way, you have a new home. Well, Caesar's decree wasn't like that, but it did mean that you had to make a very, very disruptive journey. You'd have to travel overland on foot to the country or to the city of your birthplace so that you could be numbered so that you can pay your fair share in taxes. And all of this was facilitated by a foreign government. I mean, how would this church, or how would you respond if, let's say, China took over the U.S. and told you that you had to go to your birthplace and spend two weeks there so that you could be numbered to make sure that you're going to pay taxes? Right, if you thought that wearing a mask was controversial, right, imagine the uprising that we would have here. And Israel they resented the fact that Rome could tell them what to do. Who was Rome to tell us what to do? They were, there were little pockets of Israelites who would band together and basically become terrorist organizations and plot assassinations to get back at Rome. In fact, in Acts chapter 5, when the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, is meeting trying to figure out what to do with a small band of, of Christians who believe that Jesus is the Messiah, Gamaliel, who was the most respected rabbi at that time, uh, uses this example in Acts 5.37. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. I was making the larger point that these messianic movements will die out. But notice he says that there was an attempted insurrection that was occasioned by a census, probably a different census. But as you can imagine, there was a lot of resistance, and just because the emperor decreed something didn't mean that Joseph would abide by it. But what we see is that Joseph was a law-abiding citizen. Verse 4, and Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, up to Judea, 
to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered. Right? He, understand the tr- he understood the truth, even though it wasn't written yet, of, of Romans 13.1. Let every person be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So he travels to his ancestral home because the government decreed it and he decided to obey. Now, only the man had to be a part of this census. Mary did not have to go. And yet we read in verse 5, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now, this brief comment explains that Joseph and Mary, their relationship survived this unexpected pregnancy. And the reason why it survived was because of God's intervention. Matthew 21, 20 through 21, Joseph, son of David, this is an angel speaking to Joseph after he found out that his wife is pregnant with a child that's not his own. An angel says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. So he complied, took her as his wife, but Luke uses the word betrothed to basically send the message that they were not intimate at this point. That would not happen until after she gave birth. So all that to say, Mary did not have to make this journey, and she chose to. There could be a number of reasons why. We don't know. It could be that this was a shotgun wedding, and there might have been some community reproach, and she didn't want to bear the reproach alone without her husband. Or it could be she was near the time of giving birth and decided that she didn't want to be separated from her husband to do so. But either way, Mary, for those of you women who are great with child, I've never been there, but I can imagine, kind of, she had to make a 75 to 90 mile journey depending on her route. And you think, well, that must have been difficult on the back of a donkey. Well, I hate to pop your Christmas bubble. She probably wasn't riding a donkey. Why do you say that? Donkeys were extraordinarily expensive. Only rich people rode donkeys. Like the rich man in the Good Samaritan, he was on a donkey. A donkey on the low side would be two months salary. On the high side, 24 months. And given that Joseph and Mary had to sacrifice a pair of turtle doves because they didn't have enough money for a real offering, she wasn't riding a donkey. She was walking, great with child, 75 to 90 miles. I mean, that's commitment. So why did she do that? Well, she made that decision. And there's all kinds of ways why she did it. But we know ultimately it was to be a fulfillment of prophecy. Look at verses 6 through 7. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, or swaddling cloths, and laid him in, laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And so in many ways, this was a very uh, a normal birth, right? She gave birth, and she basically burritoed him in cloths, right? So I, I think baby burritos are the cutest thing. But there's a reading, right? Keep them warm and they can't scratch themselves. And then, and these are the unique parts. Laid him in a manger because there was no room at the inn. 
Now, that, the manger and the no room at the end has led to endless speculations. And, and part of it has been fueled by a, an ancient story that came out later in the second century called the Proto-Evangelium of James. In it, the author describes the nativity story that Joseph and Mary showed up in Bethlehem at night. Okay, so they're at night. The text doesn't say that, but the story does. And as they show up, we read this quote from Mary. Joseph, take me down from the ass, for the child within me presses me to come forth. Now, that's not found in the text either. And so, according to the story, Joseph brings her down and frantically searches for some place where they can have the child, and he finds a cave, which is also a stable and so, baby Jesus is born there. Now, this is compelling drama, isn't it? You just imagine the cinematic scene. On a starry night, a tired couple is approaching Bethlehem, and they see the city lights, and you have Joseph carefully guiding the donkey as Mary is sitting on top of it as her water breaks. Desperate, he tries to find some dignified accommodations so that he can oversee the birth of his son. He knocks on the door, and an innkeeper opens it. Grumpy that somebody woke him up in the middle of the night. And he says, what do you want? Please, sir, my, my wife is about to have a baby, and I, we're just looking for some place where she can lay her head. Well, don't you know there's a census? There's no room. Sorry closes the door, and then innkeeper turns around, and he sees his wife giving him the, don't you have a heart look? You remember what it was like to be young. You remember what it was like to bear our children. How could he just turn them away at night? He has a pangs of conscience. He opens the door and says, wait! We got a stable over here. It's not much, but, you know, with some fresh hay, you can make it work. Oh, thank you. And then they have the baby around lowing sheep and a donkey. Right? That's the Christmas story. Again, I'm popping Christmas bubbles here. The story is a lot more normal than that. You see, that story almost makes it sound like Jesus was born as an outlaw. The whole world was against him when this happened. This portends of, 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 the, of the fact that this world would not welcome their Savior, right? But that's probably not what happened. And I'll give you three reasons why. Number one, Joseph is from Bethlehem. Joseph was part of the favored clan in the favored city. It'd be like being a Kennedy in Boston. All he'd have to say is, my name is Joseph, son of Heli, son of Mathat, and the entire town would be open to him. Welcome home, son. You're one of us. Secondly, Mary was pregnant. Rural communities all over this planet have a special priority on pregnant women. They understand that you need to take care of her. You don't just turn somebody who's pregnant away. And thirdly, nothing really demands that Mary gives birth right away. 
he showed up. The fact that it, she showed up at night and her water broke, that's not in the text. That's because of that additional Christian story. So what do we make of the manger and what do we make of their no room at the end? Well, I'm going to do something a little bit different here. I actually have a slide. Do we have a slide? All right. This is a first century house in Israel. Uh, it's kind of the typical one that you would see. And, and as you can see, there's two stories. On the upper stories are the living quarters. The one where the people are, that would be the family room, and then they'd have a special guest room. That guest room, uh, lodging space, is where we get the term inn. So when we understand that there is no room at the inn, what likely happened is nobody had a lodging room open because of the census. But they would have had that lower story open. Now, I know it's kind of strange for us to think about, but they would actually have some large farm animals that would stay in their homes. And the reason why is, one, the animals help keep them warm at night. And secondly, remember how expensive a donkey is? If you want to make sure that your milk cow is not taken at night, you store them inside. And so they'd have flagstones or cobblestones, and they would basically put mangers between the columns there. So it's likely that if Joseph and Mary were to show up, a hospitable Near Eastern host would not kick their guest out because that's a violation of hospitality. But what they would do is make accommodations on the lower story so that they would have a place where he could be and there would be mangers there that are kind of already built into the furniture. So Jesus was born on that lower story and then laid in a manger and it was likely a celebration by the community. All this to say, this was a normal birth. We can go back to the outline, unless you still want to look at the house. Okay. But what makes it so remarkable is that it's a fulfillment of ancient prophecy. And that prophecy is Micah 5.2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Now, to understand that, you have to look at the background. In the background, Micah is addressing a, a, a people that has grown affluent and indulgent. They're not taking the threats and warnings of the prophets seriously. So in the previous verse, he says, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us with a rod. They will strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Micah is saying, hey, judgment is coming. You guys who are fat and lazy right now, you will pay in the future. You will be subjugated. And they were subjugated, right, to the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medes, the Greeks, and now the Romans. But then he gives hope by saying, but you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, you are too little to be among the clans of Judah, for from you shall come forth for me, one who is a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. There's going to be a ruler that's going to come from Bethlehem. Now, when you say Bethlehem to an Israelite, they would associate Bethlehem with one name, right? If you were doing a road trip through Israel at that time and you drove through Bethlehem, you'd see, welcome to Bethlehem, hometown of King David. You would go ahead and pull up and go to the King David Visitor Center where there would be King David impersonators singing his psalms on lyres. There would be a reenactment of David and Goliath. You'd be able to take a tour of the home where he was born. 
right? He was the signature member of that. And I can't, they don't really have reenactments back then, but maybe now. But he was a signature name. It'd be like going to um, Abilene. And what names associated with Abilene? Dwight Eisenhower. So they mentioned Bethlehem. The ruler's going to come from Bethlehem. He's going to be associated with David in some way. And it also said that his goings forth are from long ago. Well, long ago um, is used in Habakkuk 1.12 where it says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? Long ago means like long, long, long ago. They're basically saying that this ruler existed long ago. So how can a new ruler exist long ago? Well, he's pre-existent. And thirdly, he's been active from ancient days. It doesn't speak of eternality. It speaks of, of history, of antiquity. That there is a continuity between this ancient line of David and this new ruler who's going to come forth. And so it's significant that Jesus was born in Bethlehem because by being in Bethlehem, he's a fulfillment of this prophecy. He is the new David to come who will liberate Israel from their sins. And, and we know the story, right? He was born in Bethlehem. He eventually grew up. He ministered for three years in Israel, testifying of the kingdom of God. He was betrayed by one of his disciples. He was tried in the kangaroo court. He was executed on a cross, and then he was raised from the dead. He wasn't the leader they expected, but he was the Messiah that they needed because he defeated sin and death. And when you look at this passage, there's, there's all kinds of ways that this prophecy could have been fulfilled, right? You could have had an angel appear to Joseph and Mary and say, you need to go to Bethlehem so your child can be born there. Right? Isn't that what happened when an angel told them to get out of Bethlehem and go to Egypt? Or you look at uh, the Philip the Evangelist in Acts, he was actually teleported. Right? That would be a miracle. They wake up, next thing you know, they're in Bethlehem and they have their baby there. But God chooses to use a normal birth to accomplish the supernatural prophecy. And when I look at this, I think there's, <laughs> this is important for a number of reasons. For one, often there is an infatuation with the novel and, and signs. People want to see God move. They don't necessarily want to believe that he's moving. They want to see him moving. And you look at Jesus' ministry, and you look at the biblical testimony, there's, there's always been an infatuation with signs. For instance, signs, you know, some people want to see a miracle or a sign to confirm some truth from God. Remember when Moses was talking to God at the burning bush and he wanted to know, how, how, how are these people going to believe that what I'm saying comes from God? And he says, well, take the staff, throw it to the ground, and it becomes a what? A snake. Or, or you look at Gideon. He wanted to make sure that, you know, I really need to do these things. Well, he had to put down a fleece, and depending on the dew, the presence or the non-presence of dew, he would know if it was from the Lord. Others seek a sign because they don't believe other signs. Matthew chapter 12, the critics of Jesus say, you're doing these miracles, but by the power of Satan, not the Holy Spirit. But if you give us one more sign, then maybe we'll believe in you. Others seek signs because they're curious thrill-seekers. You think about Herod. Self-indulgent king 
When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. This is Luke 2, 23, 8. For he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. Others see signs hoping to get something for themselves, right? John 6, 26. Truly I say to you, you are seeking me because you saw signs, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves, right? All this to say, people want to see signs. They want to see God moving. They don't want to just believe that he's moving. Now, when you look at just signs in the Bible, they're really clustered into three general epics, right? You have the, the signs of, of Moses when he liberated people from Israel. That's one cluster. Uh, another cluster is the apostasy of the northern kingdom when Elijah and Elisha you know, did their signs and then obviously Jesus' ministry extending on into the apostles. And there's some exceptions here and there. There's you know, Jonah and, and Daniel to name a few. But generally, the normal mode of operation for God is for him to work through normal means. This is the doctrine of providence. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. Hebrews 1.3, he is a radiance, this is Jesus, of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. God sustains the universe through normal means made by normal humans for normal reasons. Providence means that he is at work even if you don't see the signs, even if you don't see him working. And you know what? I've, I've talked to a lot of Christians and young Christians and they're almost disappointed in how the Lord has worked in their lives because they have a boring testimony. They have a boring testimony. They'd rather have a, a testimony like Mike Warnke's testimony. Have you guys ever heard of Mike Warnke? Okay. He wrote the best-selling book, Satan Seller, in 1972. And in this book, it details how he was a, an orphan who bounced around from foster home to foster home. He drifted from his family and his friends, and he joined a satanic cult. And while in this cult, he did all kinds of bad things involved in kidnapping and raping. But he, he rose to the highest echelon of the, the satanic order, was a satanic high priest, oversaw 1,500 Satan worshipers in three different cities, eventually got drafted and he went to Nam where he became a war hero and somehow overcame all his hatred and anger towards God and became a born-again Christian and moved to Southern California where he met and married his wife, right? Isn't that like the most wonderful testimony you've ever heard? I mean... If you were to write your own testimony, that is the type of testimony you would write if you wanted to be spectacular, which is what he did. He made it up. He made it up. The whole thing fell apart. He became a best-selling Christian comedian, made millions in revenue, even though he went through four marriages. Now, what does it say that people are willing to overlook all that stuff because of this spectacular testimony? Sometimes people are just addicted to transcendence and they want to see God moving. They can't just believe that he actually is moving. And, and this has a couple of dangers. I, I remember talking to um, a man who's, who was kind of in torment because his pastor was kind of going off the deep end. 
He explained to me that his pastor's daughter, his pastor discovered that his daughter is actually able to see the spirit realm, that she had a unique ability to see and locate spirits. And so this pastor would take this man with him and they would go on basically demon exorcism crusades. They'd find demons, they would cast them out, they knew how to speak to them. And, and this guy just said, it's just so exciting. Or you look at another person, and I've seen this many times in seminary, where they get addicted to the theologically novel. You know, orthodox theology is just so bland and tiresome. I need something new, something exciting. Not the same old, same old. But you know, in all of that, there's an underappreciation for what God normally does and the miracle of that. I mean, if you have a boring testimony, ever thought about this? God's given you a new heart. That's spectacular. The bondage of sin has been broken. You have been transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of light. You're baptized by the Holy Spirit. Everyone who is a believer is. You are adopted as a child of the king. You have an inheritance in heaven. You don't have to make up a great story to have a spectacular reality in your life. See, a normal birth story can have a spectacular result as we see in Luke chapter 2, 1 through 7. One of my favorite places on earth is Colorado because I love hiking in the mountains. And when you hike in Colorado, all the mountains, well, not all of them, many of them have these, have these U-shaped valleys. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where giant glaciers basically carved and scraped these valleys to just give these beautiful rock formations. Now, I looked this up. Do you know how fast a glacier moves? The average glacier moves at 11 inches a day. 11 inches a day. Maybe you could see a glacier move. But you know, the providence of God is kind of like the glacier. It's powerful, it's forceful, it's making beautiful realities and landscapes, right? But you don't see it move. But you don't have to see it move to know that it's doing something wonderful. And that's the way it is with the providence of God and the normal life. When you go to work, when you raise your family, when you read your Bible, when you engage in all these normal activities, that doesn't mean that God is moving. It just moves, means that he's moving like a glacier. He is moving. He is working. He is accomplishing his perfect and spectacular will. And what is that will? Well, something beautiful. Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Don't allow the boredom or disdain for what is normal to obscure the beautiful realities that God is working in your life. Whether you see it or sense it, know by faith that God's providential hand is sculpting, changing, transforming you and transforming this world into something beautiful. He uses a normal birth to do spectacular things, and he can use your normal life to do something amazing as well. Let's pray. Well, Father, we are grateful for <clears throat> your invisible hand and how you used a very normal story to do some profound 
to do something profound. And I pray for anyone here who might be struggling with discontent or just have kind of an itch or just searching for a new normal or a better normal, that they will just lean into the life that you have given them and embrace it, knowing that you are at work. In Christ's name, amen.